Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Voltaire described him as the man who gives battle as readily as he can write an opera. And in tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of the philosopher king who became known in history as Frederick the Great. We'd love you to join our discussion as we debate whether Frederick really was all that great. You can text us on 53106, text cost 30 cents, or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week we found out about the glory and the sorrow of the French Revolution, the development of the first Irish cities, and why an English aristocrat established a Buddhist retreat on his historic estate. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Frederick the Great. Considered one of the most successful European monarchs of the 18th century, Frederick became the Prussian king at the age of 28, Viewed as an enlightened monarch, he surrounded his court with intellectuals, musicians, artists and philosophers. Frederick had many achievements, including the abolition of physical punishment, but his reputation suffered in the 20th century when he was blamed for the creation of Prussian militarism. Hitler notably kept a portrait of Frederick over his desk and had Goebbels read him extracts of his life. So in tonight's show we want to explore the life behind the legend and find out whether Frederick really was that great. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Tim Blanning is Emeritus Professor of Modern European History at the University of Cambridge. He won the British Academy Medal for his book, Frederick the Great, King of Prussia. Professor Patricia Simpson, Patty, is Professor of Modern German Languages and Literatures at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and is the co-editor of the book Enlightened War, German Theories and Cultures of Warfare from Frederick the Great to Clausewitz. Giles McDonough is an award-winning historian, journalist and translator and is the author of Frederick the Great, A Life in Deed and Letters. Professor David Blackburn is Cornelius Vanderbilt, Distinguished Chair of History at Vanderbilt University and his books include the award-winning The Conquest of Nature, Water, Landscape and the Making of Modern Germany. Well, you're all very welcome. And Giles, I might begin with you. And I suppose a question about how we should view Frederick, because he's been called a philosopher king, a warrior king, an enlightened despot, Frederick the Great. There's all these terms, names and descriptions. But I wonder how do we balance the good aspects of his of his reign, the enlightened aspects, with the darker, more negative aspects, for example, his militarism, his pursuit of glory and so on, because it definitely seems to be a mixed legacy. Well, it's the problem, I suppose, um, of judging it from our own point of view, isn't it? Um, Would he have, I mean, he was called Frederick the Great um, in 1745 when he returned from the Silesian Wars, and his greatness there is being measured by his military success. Now, I suppose in contemporary terms, people wouldn't be quite so keen on that, but um, much of his greatness was perceived at the time uh, as a military leader not so much as a philosopher king or something like that. Although Frederick himself, quite famously, did say uh, that he'd rather be remembered for writing a book of poetry than for winning a battle. Tim, it is interesting, isn't it, that there are elements of the life and the career that we admire. There's elements that are more problematic. But in terms of 18th century monarchs, he's one of the ones who really stands out because 
I suppose he he does stand in contrast to to many of his contemporaries. Well, the competition wasn't very great, was it? If you're comparing him with Louis the Fifteenth or George the Second, but um, I think that what made him stand out as being an extraordinary world historical figure, a phrase much used by 19th century German nationalist historians, was that it was a kind of David and Goliath. And when Frederick came to the throne in 1740, Prussia was very definitely a second or perhaps even third division power in Europe. Um, the population was only just over 2 million. The population of France at that time was probably 23 or 24 million. So, um, and yet he, in the space of um, 20, 23 years, you know, he turns Prussia into undoubtedly a great power and takes on the most powerful coalition that ever been put together in Europe in the Seven Years' War between 1756 and 1763 and comes out as the victor. And I think it's that, uh, it's, it's that the, the measure of his, his achievement is that against all the odds, he's, he's winning, surviving. That's what, what's, that's what does it for him. David, if we look at his early life, if we look at his relationship with his father, you mightn't have perhaps have predicted such greatness and such glory. It seems to have been a, an incredibly difficult relationship. He, he ran away at one point. He uh, was regularly humiliated by his father and in public. Uh, it, it, it perhaps uh, wasn't uh, the life of someone who you might expect then to receive such, such great praise when he became king himself. You're you're right. I mean, in in some ways, of course, the the conflict between the the king and the crown prince is a, an old story, and we can think of examples, you know, closer to to Britain. But even within the Hohenzollerns, there's a long history of conflict between father and son. But I think you're right that uh, that the relationship between the young Frederick and uh, Frederick William, his his father, was particularly uh, toxic, and it's a real clash of types um uh, the father was the the soldier king um who was austere uh, highly masculine um and thought of his his son the young frederick as being as, as he called him a french windbag you know he he hung out with philosophers and he played the flute and he wrote poetry all of these things which seemed very un hohenzollern uh, to to his father so yes uh, when frederick uh, uh, accedes to the throne in, in in 1740 you wouldn't necessarily uh, have predicted that he would become exactly what his father had always wanted him to be but feared that he never would be Patty, I wonder when we talk about Frederick the Great, do we have to reconsider uh, how we view this period, or indeed maybe history in general and ideas about masculinity, maybe some of the very concepts that we're discussing tonight about absolutism, that he forces us maybe to, to consider them in different ways? Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, that Frederick stands for and has come to stand for is for Prussian hegemony. And that comes to be a um, this serves as a meta narrative for German history up through the 20th century. Um, I'm a child of the Cold War, and uh, the word Prussia was never used. Um, it's something of a, a marvel today to walk down to Dane Linden and 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 see it everywhere, um, and to see Frederick's legacy inscribed all over all over that boulevard. 
along with the history of the effects of war. And I think writing against the grain of history, writing against that kind of meta narrative, you inevitably end up talking about and finding the critical voices at the time of Frederick the Great who spoke out against him, who identified the hypocrisy, who identified a kind of megalomaniacal um, approach to power. And a lot of that is embedded in gender discourse, the rebellion against the masculinity of the father. Not to say that gender relationships and gender definitions weren't far more nuanced than a kind of binary at the time, but he is a combination of, of a sort of brutality and delicacy that came to uh, represent the sort of things that he performed for in an outward facing way for his people. And, um, and then again, a kind of separate private life in the refuge that he established for himself at Sanssouci, surrounded by philosophers, by the literary, by music and by reading and the things that he loved. Tim, connected to that probably is the, the debate that's always surrounding him about his sexuality. And I think it's probably accepted now that he was homosexual. And that seems to have created extra layers of complexity in his life. And, and you also see it in the tensions with his father. His father, the relationship with his father, I don't think that was very important. As um, Davis just said, he called him a French wingbag, but he also called him a sodomite. And he also said that he was effeminate. And uh, um, some of the hostility, at least, comes from the suspicion on the part of the father that uh, Frederick was was homosexual in his uh, in his proclivities. Although the very use of the word homosexual is extremely problematic, it's a term invented in the 19th century and imposing it on the 18th century when the nature of sexuality was so different is actually rather difficult. But the 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 sexual element in the relationship with the father, I'm, uh, uh, there were many more important things. I mean, Frederick William wanted his son, he wanted his son to be economical, he wanted his son to be interested in manly pursuits, that meant hunting, Frederick hated hunting instantly. He wanted him to be economic. oh, I said that, he wanted him to, uh, above, me all, above all, he wanted him to be a devout Christian. And Frederick was none of those things, and, and so it, it was a, a collision that was waiting to happen. And as Frederick grew up, as he left his mother's uh, apron strings when he was six or seven, was given male tutors, it became increasingly obvious that uh, this was not Frederick William's boy. It's not what the boy he wanted. Something quite different. And Patty, he was forced into an arranged marriage, but it seems to have been particularly unhappy. I don't think uh, he treated her particularly well, although perhaps when he became king, maybe it was a little bit better because he seems to have just maybe separated himself from her and and allowed her to live uh, far away from him. Well, it was part of the bargain that he had to strike with his father, and that has been mentioned before. Um, he did succumb to his father's wishes ultimately, and I think when um, considering considering the forced marriage to um, uh, to Christine Elizabeth, she was devout and she was not as um, comely as Frederick would have liked her to have been. He's his first engagement to um, um, uh, uh, in relative, in fact, uh, that his mother had arranged with her um, brother's children in England was was disrupted by political intrigue and to prevent alliances so that public and private Frederick 
um, they're the same person and they're constantly coming into conflict with them with each other and also with the demands of the head of state. Um, but he did, as you say, separate himself from his wife. He provided for her. They never di divorced, but there's um, she was she never set foot in Sanssouci. Um, she had a kind of quiet, isolated existence. She was in the family. She was in, among the family portraits. But um, again, she was she was not a major part of his life, which is not to say that he rejected all all female influence. He certainly was devoted to his mother. He shared the love of porcelain with her, white gold, among many other things, music and literature. But he, for example, um, broke his own rules about not having German sopranos and invited um, Elizabeth Schmeling to perform as a court soprano at Sanssouci. Um, and he also had a female uh, a uh, court painter, um, uh, uh, Dorothea Terbusch, who did one of the most famous portraits of Frederick. So his relationship, of course, he had tensions with various empresses um, whose power he uh, simply took in stride, but he was also capable of diplomacy in, in, in dealing with uh, the opposite sex. Um, his, again, I, I, I would um, also emphasize what David was saying about um, the difficulties in applying certain terminologies, contemporary terminologies to gender relations in the 18th century, Giles, too. Very good. Uh, I sorry, I think that was Tim. I think he made that point. David, I think th there is a, a fascinating insight into uh, his world, his relationship with his father, his relationship with a friend when he tried to run away in 1730 and uh, his father executed the friend possibly lover who he was planning on running away with. Yes, I mean, this, this is uh, a signature moment. Uh, uh, the, the, the friend in question, uh, Hans uh, Hermann von Katter, was, a, uh, was a, a young uh, soldier in the army, and uh, Frederick, uh, tired of the, of the blows and being cuffed around and bowled out by his father, decides to run away with Cutter. Uh, the plot is discovered. It was fairly amateurish. And uh, Frederick William uh, considers executing his own son, but uh, instead uh, puts him in uh, the fortress of Custrine and forces him to watch uh, while his friend, uh, I mean, his close friend, I, I echo what Tim said about the difficulty of categorizing these sort of homoerotic relationships with, with our terms. But uh, clearly that they were very, very close. And, and Frederick is forced by the guards to watch his friend uh, being executed uh, by, by the sword. Uh, and in fact, he's then kept in the fortress of Custrine for another two and a half months, initially uncertain whether in fact his father will order his execution. Um, after two and a half months, he writes... Uh, a contrite letter of apology is, is allowed out and is then uh, forced by his father to uh, become more like a, what his father thinks is a true Hohenzollern, to, to ride around the kingdom as part of the estates, uh, uh, the, uh, the bureaucracy, to uh, gather materials on the uh, uh, 
on on the kingdom and what exists within the kingdom, the people, the crops, the the buildings, and so on. And uh, in some ways, it's this experience of riding around doing his father's bidding after this traumatic episode, which uh, creates in Frederick the level of knowledge, uh, which uh, this is where my own interest in Frederick came in. And when I wrote the book Conquest of Nature, I was interested in his uh, uh, reclaiming of land, draining of marshes, uh, the bringing in of settlers to, uh, Tim, Tim mentioned the increase in population, 300,000 people come into Prussia uh, in the decades after the uh, after the Seven Years' War. Um, Frederick acquires this knowledge uh, from the ground up uh, of of his kingdom and the lie of the land, literally, in the wake of this very traumatic episode in um, in 1730. Giles, it's almost like a, an 18th century version of the television show Succession. This this dominant father and the the bullying and and, and toxic relationship with with the child. And he does succeed in 1740. He becomes king. He lives for another 46 years. So he rules for another uh, 46 years until 1786. And we we do have time in our second and third part to go into into that reign but do you think it was shaped by those experiences up until that point that there was a sense that he was trying to prove himself or do you think he always had a a desire to to show his greatness in the role um well he, he succeeds beyond measure doesn't he um I would say he was actually more like his father than most people give him credit for. I mean, once he had made his arrangements after 1730, when when Cutter was executed, and um, uh, after he learnt to be a Hohenzollern, uh, which obviously was in his blood anyhow, and learnt from his austere father that you know he he knew that. Um, he would only come into his estate if he essentially bowed before his father. But by the end, by the time that Frederick is on uh, visiting his father on his deathbed, you know, this extraordinary relationship becomes clear that um, his father is actually willing this succession on a boy on he's very proud of by that stage. He knows that Frederick is ready to avenge him over these very, very petty um, dynastic claims that he has in West Germany that uh, Frederick William felt particularly aggrieved about because he he failed to get hold of um, a particular duchy. Um, And Frederick was going to do that for him, and he was confident that Frederick would bring glory to Prussia. you know that the son had become by that stage rather like the father not not obviously in all things but uh, i i would say there was a lot more in common between the two men than is generally credited very good well we are going to take a quick break now but when we come back we'll be exploring the reign of frederick the great and we'll be looking at the seven years war his plans for prussia and indeed a lot more so stay with us here on news talk talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of Frederick the Great, an absolutely stellar panel of experts tonight. Professor Tim Blanning, Professor Patricia Patty Simpson, Giles McDonough, Professor David Blackburn. Uh, David, can we talk about 
uh, can we talk about the I suppose the, that first decade because you have the the uh, you know and maybe even the first two decades because you have great military adventures and expansions then in that period you have the conflict with Silesia which I think catches a lot of people by surprise you have the involvement in the Seven Years War and and success there and it definitely seems to be marked with with military endeavors and 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 achieving his greatness as as we've said in that area. Well, that's that's uh, that, that's certainly true, um, uh, and 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 you're right about Silesia catching uh, catching people by by surprise. I mean, I we, you you started by asking about whether he was so great, and I, I think one of the questions we want to 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 ponder is whether the reputation for uh, for, for conquest, for military prowess, shouldn't also be uh, balanced out by looking at the kinds of conquest which took place not on the battlefield but um, but um, domestically uh, in you know in taming the unruly countryside. And if I can take your question and address that for those first first decade or so, I mean one of the one of the anecdotes which comes up in all of the biographies of Frederick is when in 1753, so he's been on the throne 13 years, he's in his early 40s, um, he looks down on the river valley of the river order and says, very interestingly, here I have conquered a province peacefully. So not conquest by the sword as in Silesia, but uh, the conquest of land by reclaiming it by sort of Dutch methods of ditching and draining and diking and planting settlers on this very kind of Dutch uh, land that uh, uh, that results and there are hundreds of these projects throughout throughout the reign and the tempo in fact picks up after the uh, Seven Years War but that that's a, a metaphor that. Uh, Frederick often uses the metaphor of conquest applied not just to military prowess, uh, but to um, to these kind of con- these struggles, as he sees it, with a refractory, uh, dark uh, nature. Um, and he you know, he once, on another occasion, said that anyone who um, who reclaims uh, the soil and drains swamps is making conquests from barbarism. So this language of military conquest um, it clearly applies to to the to the uh, military success, but it's something that runs through the domestic policy as well. And David, in your book, you talk about sand as well. Sand was a big problem for him. I think he, he compared uh, Prussia to Libya in terms of the amount of sand. and It was such a problem that they had to, I think, plant trees and try and find ways of, of dealing with that problem. Well, that, that's, that's right. You know, yes, he, he says that uh, in typical acerbic wit that... Uh, um, that in matters of sand, uh, Prussia can can rival Libya. Um, yes, I mean planting trees in sand, draining marshes. There's a whole series of uh, efforts to uh, to establish a kind of order as as the world of the Enlightenment sees it. And we haven't yet talked much about the the Enlightenment element, but. Uh, uh, extirpating wild animals, campaigns against against wolves and bear and lynx, 
um, attempts to fight the scourge of fire. So it's sand and water and fire and wild animals. Um, all the things that we want to protect, you know, wetlands and wolves, uh, Frederick wanted to put in their place. Uh, and, and that's very much the spirit of the Enlightenment. And I think one of the things that you want us to debate is the degree to which the absolutist and the enlightened prince, you know, the, the, the balance between those two. And this is very much the spirit of the Enlightenment, but what he's doing is uh, is imposing um, imposing a kind of discipline on the on the on the natural world. And Tim, it is interesting that sometimes when you look at leaders, they're they're obsessed by one thing, or they have one overriding vision of something that they want to achieve. And what's complicated about Frederick is that he seems to have all of these multiple visions. He, he, he has visions in terms of the greatness of Prussia. He has visions in terms of, you know, reclaiming the, the, the marshes and uh, preventing flooding and, and dealing with the problem of sand, but also in terms of music and the arts and literature, philosophy and having this court around him that you can't just pin him down and say this was his main focus. He seems to be I don't know if you'd had a if you'd had a record of his daily act. He seems to have been incredibly busy or incredibly focused to have had so many different aspects to to his reign. Well, yes, you could say that, um, and certainly he was a, a very active king in all kinds of departments, as the way in which David is so eloquently explained. But I think that does miss one rather important point, and that is what he really cared about was doing better than his father in the field of war and conquest. His father had built up a most, one of the most formidable armies in Europe. He had collected a huge war chest, eight, 80 million talers in gold, wrapped up in gold, wrapped up in the barrels in the, university, in the uh, palace of Potsdam. Frederick was the richest young man in Europe, so he was ready to go. Uh, and that's what he did. And I think um, it's all very well looking at all the other different things he did, you know, operas he composed and so on. But the bottom line comes back to December 1740 when he takes his army into Silesia and seizes it. That was the primal sin. It was the primal event uh, of, his, uh, of his brain. And he spends the next 46 years trying to hang on to it. And that's what determined pretty well everything. I don't want to be too reductionist about this, but um, that, that power, political ambition, has to be there. Uh, seizing Silesia was extremely important for him, uh, not least because it provided, and we haven't actually mentioned the Habsburg monarchy, the Austrians, yet we jolly well should do, because that was always his prime, his prime target was doing down the Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire. And the province of Silesia, the most prosperous of all the provinces of the Habsburg monarchy, supplied something like a quarter of the total tax revenue of the Habsburg monarchy, and Frederick takes it away. And one thing we ought to remember there, I'll stop in a moment, uh, and that is that uh, if, if you take all the various assets of Silesia, its uh, economic prosperity, its population, its trade, its industry, and so on, and you add them all up and express them by the algebraic symbol X, then the relationship between Prussia and Austria, the Habsburg monarchy, has not changed by X, it's changed by 2X, because what Austria has, Prussia now has, if you follow me, or in par uh, footballing parlance, this is a, a six-pointer. Okay, 
And well, maybe t- Tim will continue on that because you see maybe something similar with the Seven Years' War. Again, he's 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 on the side of Britain. He's against the Habsburgs. He's against France. And is that a gamble for him? Because it certainly seems to have turned out well for him in the end. Yes, it was a gamble, but I wouldn't see it as as a separate war. The Germans, they talk about the first, second, and third Silesian wars. Uh, the third one being what we call the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763. Yes, I suppose it was a gamble, he, partly due to his was in trouble by 1756. He then makes a series of errors uh, and finds himself in the situation that he knows he's got good intelligence. He had a mole in the Austrian embassy in Berlin. He had a mole in Saxony. He was opening mail and reporting back. He was intercepting Dutch reports. So he knew what was going on. And he knew that the only reason that the Austrians, the Russians and the French hadn't attacked him in 1756 was that the Russians weren't ready. It took a very long time to get the Russian war machine, cranky old thing, to get it into first gear. And so they had, at the Russian request, they postponed the attack until the following season. That would be the spring of 1757. So Frederick knew that they were coming for him. This was a colossal coalition because it included not only those three powers, Russia, Austria, uh, and France, but it also included Sweden and many of the princes of the Holy Roman Empire. So like the Welsh rugby team, he decided to get his retaliation in first. And he hoped that by striking suddenly, quickly, in August 1756, he could knock out Saxony, get through and knock out the Austrians, and that would make the, the French and the Russians think again. That was a gamble. It failed in the short term, at least, because he, the Saxons proved to be tougher than he had expected, and the Austrians too, for that matter. So uh, they, he does find himself by 1757 in a situation in which, as I said, this great coalition looks as though it was on the point of destroying him. Patty, I want to ask you about the three P's of porcelain, potatoes and philosophy, because you mentioned porcelain earlier. And I, and I, and I wonder, is it true that that was a, a big obsession for him? Uh, second on the potatoes, a lot of texts in from people uh, who, who've always heard that he was the person who introduced the potato to, to, to Germany, to Prussia. And, and third on the philosophy, I wonder, given his interest in it, was it reciprocated? Did philosophers think, oh, this is great that we have someone who's taking an interest or did they think perhaps he wasn't always getting it right? Interesting, yes. Well, let me start with the first P. Let me start with porcelain. And, and um, there are ways in which uh, Frederick was able to combine uh, personal loves and military conquest and the satisfaction of, of taking Silesia away from Maria Theresa. Um, among other things, it also hooks into his relationship fraught relationship, an ambivalent relationship to his father. Um, in 1717, Frederick Will- Williams sold um, a, the East Asian porcelain collection to August the Strong um, in exchange for 600 Saxon soldiers. And this was devastating. He, he raided the, the, the porcelain of the Oranienburg and Charlottenburg palaces and, 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 and of course, traded them for for boots on the ground. And um, after the Second Silesian War, 
Frederick himself commissioned ser services from um, uh, table services from from Meissen, which by that time had established itself as a world class porcelain manufacturer. And Frederick himself designed a, um, a, a plate for his, I believe it was his Japanese service. And um, it, was, it was described by one um, historian of the decorative arts as looking like something like an elongated billy goat. Um, and Frederick himself dabbled in porcelain manufacturing in Berlin, you know, in the sandy earth of the uh, Mach Brandenburg. He took over in the early 1760s the um, uh, Prussian, the Berlin porcelain manufactory, calling it the König KPM, which still exists today, the Königliche Porzellanmanufaktur. And so he also, in addition to uh, uh, being a monarch and a philosopher, he took on, um, he became an entrepreneur, so to speak. And uh, the mark today is still the signature mark of KPM is the blue scepter. And he implemented certain labor reforms. Again, this is a, a money-making manufactory. At the time, Prussia was largely um, uh, known for uh, um, textile, uh, textile production. But there was no child labor. He set specific working hours, which was not always the case. He also paid above average wages, established something like a, uh, like a factory clinic for a health clinic, um, which some of us in the United States still dream of, and provided the kind of assistance for widows and orphans that we associate with, with pension funds. Now, he was also his own best customer and eventually had 21 table services in his various palaces, used porcelain as a diplomatic gift, uh, uh, and among other things, got interested in research and development, R&D as we call it today. And for four years, the uh, manufacturer worked on, on coming up with a particular shade of blue that, Frederick, that, met, that met with Frederick's um, approval. And so his legacy turns out to be both sort of monumental when you think about the equestrian statues and the palaces and the architecture and also and the, the military history and also the miniatures. Um, Frederick, uh, the equestrian sculpture in as a porcelain miniature, um, which will have come later. If I could just return briefly to the issue of, of some of the, the military history, um, one of the things that Frederick did do was put himself in harm's way as as a military leader. Um, there is uh, the uh, in one of the battles in which he is says he has had two horses shot out from underneath him and was saved by a snuff box. But he did at least the legend and the legacy um, identify with the soldiers, implemented some reforms, and that kind of um, homoerotic, perhaps homosocial bonding, he brought that to the relationship between the, himself as a military leader and monarch and, and, and the soldiers. Um, and that anticipates, in a way, we think of the, uh, the citizen-soldier as a phenomenon of later in the 18th century of, 
um, post-revolutionary Napoleonic wars, but there was a little bit of that in in Frederick as well. So, um, but he didn't he didn't lose a moment after the Second Silesian War before he started taking 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 porcelain as war booty. And the potatoes. I can't really speak too much to the potatoes, but he apparently didn't. I don't know if he brought them to to Prussia, but they certainly did very well here. <laughs> and he uh, he came up with several recipes and had a cook um, uh, prepare them for him in different ways. And I think suggested, I believe, that they be served with cream at one point. Um, and in terms of philosophy... It was not necessarily as reciprocated as he would have liked it to have been. He was he did sign himself his his later works as the philosopher Sans Souci. Um, as a military philosopher, he certainly he certainly got a lot of traction. And if he wanted things to be understood, he had them translated from French into um, German. And he did that with his, I believe it was 1770, and his his principles of war, his anti Machiavel from earlier, which was um, um, supported by Voltaire takes on the idea of a political philosophy and a philosophy also of perpetual peace, which he, in fact, opposed. Um, He believed in um, principles of just wars and moral wars, and, of course, you can put any kind of spin on that that you want, um, and, 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 and just wars. And he said these are, the, these are for, for de- defensive purposes only. But again, we see that in his, in his behavior, he, was, he, he seized the moment and struck first when he could, um, and he had the element of surprise on his side. Okay, well, we're going to take another quick break now. When we come back, we're going to assess the legacy of Frederick the Great. Talking history, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back as we debate the life and legacy of Frederick the Great with Tim Blanning, Patty Simpson, Giles McDonough, and David Blackburn. Giles, can we talk before we go on to the legacy? Maybe his poetry. You've translated some of his poems. How good are they, and what were the kinds of things he liked to write about? Well, they're, they're quite naughty, some of them. But um, I think we have to say that one of Voltaire's great roles in the uh, nearly three years he spent in Berlin and Potsdam was that he was essentially engaged to improve uh, uh, Frederick's French, which wasn't nearly as good as he made out. And although the poetry can be uh, quite funny, quite naughty, and quite scabrous, I think, um, uh, one has to assume that a lot of it has been, um, let's say, edited in. Um, there is a poem that was discovered more recently about an orgasm, for example, which um, I think I also made a translation of. Um, so there's a lot of this catering to a very small private audience. He wrote his little books of poetry and confided them to his friends, but he didn't like them to get out so that other people could see what he was actually writing. It was very much for his own small private circle that he wrote the poems. And and Giles, when we talk about his legacy, it's very often overshadowed by or influenced by uh, the admiration that later historical figures had for him, including uh, Napoleon, not too too long after, but then in the 20th century, uh, someone like Hitler, who had his portrait over his desk. And in a way, that seems to have have shaded how people then look back on uh, and think about Frederick. 
Yes, that's true. I think the fact that he died three years before the French Revolution broke out uh, nullified an awful lot of his reputation at the time. For example, the body of laws that was created in his time, you know, was seen to be very, very progressive. But once the French uh, Revolution um, established a new code of laws under Napoleon later on, then obviously this was superseded and his reputation went into the shade. And famously, uh, Napoleon stands over his tomb in the garrison church in Potsdam and says, gentlemen, um, if he had been still alive, we would not be here. Um, Napoleon had great uh, respect for him. But then during the 19th century, with the development of German nationalism, which in itself is almost uh, a byproduct of the French invasion of Germany, um, Frederick assumes a new identity which he never had of a sort of German hero. And here was this man of uh, an effeminate man who spoke largely French and spoke German only on sufferance, um, becoming a hero of German nationalism, which was something that he would never have conceived of. He wasn't interested in uniting Germany. He was interested in uh, giving power to Prussia. And then, of course, uh, the worst form of distortion was being made a, a hero or a precursor of Nazism, which I think solid his reputation not just in Germany after the Second World War, where for the first 25 years or so he was sort of more or less in disgrace. It also, in terms of historiography, it meant that very few uh, British historians tackled the subject of Frederick the Great for the first 30 or 40 years after the Second World War. He'd been sullied by the fact that the Nazis had co-opted him into the Nazi movement. David, it, it is something that does hang over his legacy. And I, it, you can't blame him for the fact that Hitler in the 20th century admired him so much. But it definitely does seem to be something that, and this connection with Prussian militarism or being blamed for it, it does seem to, to be a part of the debate about him now. Yeah, I mean, these, for, for German historians, there are many figures who are retrospectively Kind of uh, solid by their association with national socialism, and one could talk here, and I'm, I'm sure Tim would be interested to follow up on this. A figure like Richard Wagner, but but you know the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and the question always is who who is the active agent in taking up these historical figures and claiming a kind of lineage, and the answer is. It's the people who come after who make of the person who came before them something that they want them to be. And clearly, and as, as, uh, as, as we heard, you know, Hitler's, Hitler's desire to identify with Frederick and, and identify very closely and having uh, Goebbels read out passages from Carlyle's life of Frederick in the, in the bunker in 1945, that, that is very much Hitler's version of Frederick. Others had their own ways of reading what they wanted into Frederick. I mean, in the 19th century, um, before 1848, before the revolution of that year, it was liberals who tended to identify with Frederick because they wanted to emphasize the, uh, the enlightened part, the, uh, the Frederick who uh, encouraged freedom of conscience, who didn't care whether you were um, a Calvinist or a Catholic or a, or a Jew, who said that if there were Muslims who came to Berlin, he would build mosques for them. They identified with that Frederick, uh, and some conservatives, including uh, Frederick William IV, were actually very suspicious of this irreligious uh, forerunner of theirs. And I think it's really, um, really the revolution of 1848 
that, or rather the aftermath of the revolution, that starts to turn Frederick into a conservative hero. It's when the statue, the famous equestrian statue, dates, I think, from 1851. And, and then particularly, we haven't mentioned Bismarck today, but I think Bismarckian unification of Germany uh, elevates the status of the army and uh, cements really the position of Frederick as a great, uh, not only Prussian hero, but a sort of Prussian-German hero, someone who supposedly, although historians would disagree, but supposedly laid the basis for later German unification. So you can see actually through the 19th century as well as in the 20th century, a kind of discontinuous history of what people make of Frederick. And you could actually continue that discontinuous history right through to East Germany, which changes its mind about whether it wants to honor Frederick or not in the 1980s. Tim, so it's, disc discontinuity would be the theme for me of the, the legacy. Wonderful. Thank you, David. Uh, Tim, I'm going to leave the last word to you. And I think we're hearing that there's lots of different elements to the legacy. And I'm still not entirely sure whether it's an overall positive one or a negative one or how we should really view Frederick today. Well, it's a mix and match, as David has just said. I mean, it depends where you're coming from. I mean, he was a wonderfully protean character. And really, whatever your views are, uh, you know, from left to right, from gay to hetero, whatever it may be, you'll find something in Frederick to like and something to dislike. But I, if, if I may have a sort of final word, I think the legacy was that Frederick introduced into German history dualism. That is a duality between Prussia in the north and Austria in the south. In the past, it had been around France that all the anti-Austrian, anti-Habsburg princes had clustered. But now they had a German prince, a German state around which they could, should cluster. And with uh, the advantage of hindsight, we can see that what is happening here is, is the first stage in which the Holy Roman Empire, which had kept the center of Europe soft for the best part of a millennium, is suddenly starting to get harder. And it gets much harder as a result of Frederick's invasion of Silesia in 1740. It gets harder still as a result of the destruction of the Holy Roman Empire by uh, the French revolutionaries and Napoleon, harder still in 1870 with the Franco-Prussian War, and very hard indeed with 1933 or 1941, whichever date you take. And um, Frederick, in, in this power political sense, we shouldn't ignore, um, is it, it, a crucial figure in that. Not, of course, that he could possibly have foreseen what was going to happen. OK, well, I think that's a wonderful note on which to end our discussion. My thanks to all my panellists, uh, Tim Blanning, at the final word there. I heard Tim give a lecture to, uh, to to us in UCD when I was a student. It was absolutely superb. So it's been a particular honour to have him on the show tonight. Uh, but absolutely, uh, my thanks to all my guests, Professor Tim Blanning, Professor Patricia Patty Simpson, Giles McDonough, Professor David Blackburn. That does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Calvin my producer and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week we'll find out about Northern Ireland's century of division, a Kerry ambush during the War of Independence and Napoleon's plundering of artworks around Europe. So join us next week on News Talk, Weeping Talking History. Good night. Talking History, History on News Talk.